It has been 20 years since I first stood at this pulpit as a newly sustained member of the Council of the Twelve. It was a frightening and humbling experience then. Now it still is. Then I asked for your faith and prayers. Now I repeat that request. I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to read about or perhaps visit the National Gallery at Trafalgar Square in London, England. It is truly one of the most magnificent museums of art in all the world. The gallery proudly proclaims its Rembrandt room, the Constable Corner, and urges everyone to take a tour of Turner's masterpieces. Every year, visitors come from all points of the earth, and they return uplifted and inspired. On a recent visit to the gallery, I noted a prominent display of beautiful portraits, majestic landscapes, but no painting carried the name of an artist. Then I saw a large plaque which contained this explanation. It said, the paintings in this exhibition have been taken from a public but largely neglected portion of the gallery, the lower floor. Our purpose is to encourage visitors to enjoy the art without worrying too much about who painted the respective paintings. The labels which appear on paintings oftentimes half unconsciously affects our estimate of them. Labeling, therefore, has been deliberately subordinate so that viewers will read only after they have looked and made their own appraisal of each. I thought to myself, like the labels on paintings are the outward appearances of some men, often misleading. The master spoke of one group by saying, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are likened unto whited sepulchres, which are indeed outward beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all manner of uncleanness. Ye do outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are filled with hypocrisy and iniquity. Then there are those outward labels which say, impoverished, born without talent, doomed to mediocrity. Such a classic label appeared below a picture of the boy Abraham Lincoln as he stood before his birthplace, a simple log cabin. The label said, ill-housed, ill-clothed, ill-fed. Unpublished, unspoken, unanticipated could have been the real label, the boy Abraham Lincoln, destined to immortal glory. As the poet said, nobody knows what a boy is worth. We'll have to wait and see. But every man in a noble place, a boy once used to be, long years ago and far, far away, I feel confident that the boy Samuel must have appeared like any other lad his age as he ministered unto the Lord before Eli. 
As Samuel lay down to bed one evening, he heard the voice of the Lord speak to him. Mistakenly thinking that it was aged Eli, he answered, Here am I. Eli heard the boy's account, then told him it was of the Lord. And next time that Samuel heard the voice of the Lord, he answered with the classic response, Speak, for thy servant heareth. And the sacred record indicates that Samuel grew, and the Spirit of the Lord was with him. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel had been established to become a prophet of the Lord. Well, the years rolled by as they relentlessly do, and then a lowly manger cradled a newborn child. There was no label to describe this event. For with the birth of the babe in Bethlehem, there emerged a great endowment, a power stronger than weapons, a wealth more lasting than the coins of Caesar. For out of this humble beginning was to come the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As a boy, Jesus was found amongst the doctors in the temple, listening to them asking them questions. The record reveals that they were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And when Joseph and Mary his mother found him, they were amazed. I suppose to the doctors, the boy Jesus might have worn a label indicating superior intellect, for they could not in their wisdom know that the true label was future redeemer of all mankind. I have often been intrigued by the messianic message of the prophet Isaiah when he described the appearance of the Lord who was to come. He said, He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we should see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And Matthew records the apparent necessity for that wicked multitude who would do harm to Jesus to conspire with the traitor Judas, that he would point out to them who of the apostolic throng was really Jesus who became the Christ. The record in the scripture is chilling to the reader. And he who betrayed him gave unto them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same is he. Hold him fast. And forthwith Judas came unto Jesus, saying, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. The label of a traitor's kiss had identified our Lord and Master. Judas now wore his own inescapable label of shame and revulsion. Oftentimes, in addition, cities, nations, bear their own labels of identity. One such city was found in eastern Canada. The missionaries called it Stony Kingston. There had been just one convert baptism to the Church in that city in six long years, even though missionaries had labored there continuously. 
No one baptized in Kingston. Ask any missionary. Time in Kingston was marked on the calendar like days in prison, one at a time. Uppermost in the thoughts and prayers of a missionary would be a transfer. To where? Anywhere. <laughs> While pondering and praying about this dilemma, for it was my responsibility as a mission president to ponder and pray about such things, my dear wife read to me an excerpt from a little volume entitled A Child's Story of the Prophet Brigham Young by Dita Peterson Neely. She read, Brigham Young came on a mission to Kingston, Canada. He arrived on a cold and snow-filled day and in 30 days baptized 45 people. Here was the answer. If the missionary Brigham Young could have success in Kingston, why not the missionaries of today? Without providing an explanation, I withdrew the missionaries from the city so that the cycle of defeat would be broken. Then, after a suitable period of time, I let the word go forth that soon missionaries would be selected to reopen a city where Brigham Young labored, where he baptized 45 persons in 30 days. The spirit of enthusiasm began to swell. The letters from the missionaries contained such items as, Send me to where Brigham Young labored. Another said, Let me walk where Brigham Young walked. One said, Send me to the Shangri-La of the mission. I had to smile. He was the very missionary I had withdrawn from Kingston. <laughs> well, after a time, four outstanding missionaries were selected. Two of them knew, two of them experienced, and Kingston was reopened with a firm proselyting base. The members pledged their support, the missionaries pledged their lives, and the Lord honored both. In the period of three months' time, Kingston became the top-producing city of the Canadian mission. What had changed? The old gray limestone building still stood. The landmarks of the city remained. The population was constant. The change was one of attitude. You see, the label of doubt had yielded to the label of faith. In that city, our branch president, Gustav Walker, had his own identifying label. He came from the old country. He spoke English with a thick accent, never owned or operated a car, was a barber by trade. The highlight of his week would be when he could cut the hair of a missionary. Never would there be a charge, but after the simple operation of the haircut, he would dig into his pockets and give the missionaries all of the tips he had earned that day. If it happened to be raining, he would call a taxi and pay for them to have a comfortable ride to their apartment, and then at day's end he would lock the shop and walk home in the driving rain. I first became acquainted with Gustav Walker when I noted that his tithing was far in excess of what one would anticipate for his anticipated income. Thinking that his English might be lacking and therefore he might be misunderstood, I said to him, Brother Walker, do you realize that the Lord requires just 10% as tithing? He said, Oh, yes. I said, Brother Walker, I think you're paying 40 or 50% of your income as tithing. He said, Oh, yes, I love to pay it. 
and that's how he paid his tithing to the Lord. He and Sister Walker made of their home a heaven on earth. They had no children of their own, but they mothered and fathered every visitor who came to Kingston. One prominent Ph.D. said, I love to go to Kingston. I like to be with President Walker. I come away refreshed. Well, did the Lord honor that faith? Why, soon that branch prospered. It was necessary to move out of the rented Slovakian hall, and then a lovely and commodious chapel was constructed. Brother and Sister Walker were called on a mission, a proselyting mission to their native Germany. And on return, they were called on yet another mission, this time a temple mission in Washington, D.C. Just three weeks or so ago, Gustav Walker, for the last time in mortality, closed his eyes as his head rested in the loving arms of his eternal companion. I only know of one label to describe such a man. Who honors God, God honors. There is yet another label, a label which is frequently seen but grudgingly born. That label reads, handicapped. Some time ago, President Spencer W. Kimball shared with President Gordon B. Hinckley, Elder Bruce R. McConkie, and with me an experience he had in the state conference of the Shreveport, Louisiana Stake. He had gone there to select a patriarch and, upon arrival, had reviewed the list of prominent names, but he didn't feel the confirming spirit toward any. Then, Saturday night in the leadership meeting, he noticed a man in the congregation. He turned to the state president and said, Who is the brother sitting two-thirds of the way back, three in from the aisle? And President Charles Cagle said, Why, that's James Womack. And Brother Kimball responded, He it is whom the Lord would have serve as your state patriarch. Have him meet with me in the high council room directly after this session. A surprised Charles Cagle acknowledged he would, for James Womack wore the label of no ordinary man. He had been grievously wounded in World War II. He had lost both hands, one arm, most of his vision, part of his hearing. When he returned from war, nobody wanted to let him in law school. But James Womack refused to wear the label handicapped and entered law school at Louisiana State University and graduated third in his class. That night, as he sat in the High Council room with Brother Kimball, Brother Kimball said, Brother Womack, the Lord has called you to be the patriarch in this stake. And Brother Womack lowered his head and said, Brother Kimball, I can't be a patriarch. A patriarch is to place his hands on the head of the person whom he blesses. As you can see, I have no hands to place on the head of anyone. President Kimball then said, Brother Womack, with your body, make your way along by the High Council table until you are standing directly behind the chair on which I am seated. He did so. And then Brother Kimball said, Now lean forward and see if the stumps of your arms will reach the top of my head. And as Brother Womack leaned forward, he said to Brother Kimball, I can reach you. I can reach you. 
And this wonderful prophet of ours stood and embraced him and said, Of course you can reach me. Of course you can reach me. And if you can reach me, you can reach anyone whom you bless. I will be the shortest person ever to sit beneath your <laughs> particular stance. Brother Kimball said that the next morning when the name was presented to the congregation, the hand shot heavenward in a vote of approval. Perhaps the label which was running through their minds was the word of the Lord spoken to Samuel at the time young David was designated to be king of Israel. You remember the words. They're beautiful. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh upon the heart. Like a golden thread woven through the fabric of life is the label which identifies a humble heart. It was true of the boy Samuel. It characterized the life of Jesus. It was in evidence in the experience of Gustav Walker and in the calling of James Womack. With all of my heart, I pray that that same label may identify you and identify me. Four simple words. Lord, here am I. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.